Well, amen and good morning, church. As Blake said, my name is Ethan. If you have not met me, um, I've been serving here for like three months now. So I know I've met a lot of you so far. A lot of you I've already known or you knew my parents or family growing up. I'm from Vidalia, graduated in 2010. It feels like just yesterday and I woke up and now I'm 30. And so uh, it's crazy how that works, but um, excited to be here. And, and I shared this at the first service. And when I was younger, I felt a call to ministry, but I had such a heart for missions. And I was like, God, send me anywhere. And I was thinking overseas. I thought I'd be battling somewhere in the jungle of Africa right now or somewhere in China or Russia. And lo and behold, 12 years later, I own a house and I'm living and working back in Vidalia. So it's funny how that works. And, and one thing I found out is that God's plans for our life are always better than our plans for our life. The center of God's will is the safest place and the, most, the place of most fruit. Outside of that, you can have the best circumstances, but no peace, no joy, and, and I don't want that. And so praise the Lord, he's brought me here. I'm honored to serve here, honored to, to serve alongside amongst you guys. And man, I'm just excited to share what God has put on my heart through the church of Sardis. And I know Blake and Frankie, I believe too, mentioned an example that's kind of ongoing about these, these uh, letters in the book of Revelation to these churches, it's like they're MRI. Why do we still read them if they're to a different church, not Connection Church, right? Well, here's the thing. It meant to them, or it was written to them, but it also applies to us. It's like if you've ever broken a bone, if you played sports or owned a four-wheeler growing up or been in any accidents or anything, just reckless living, if you've ever been to the doctor and had an X-ray MRI, you can see through to what's really inside. And I feel like these letters to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, they give us a great picture of, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care, the Lord said, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what everyone else sees. I'm talking to you directly to your heart. And before I pray in and we read the scripture this morning, one thing I wanna challenge you with is I'm reminded of every time I go to the dentist, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a, I have a residual problem for 30 years. I don't floss. And every time I go to the dentist, I've already decided in my heart, in my mind, I'm gonna smile and agree with the, the lady or whoever, and she's gonna tell me about 10 times how I need to floss more. And I'm gonna leave there and I'm still not gonna floss. <laughs> so I don't know if that's any of you. And, and I, if, you're, if you're a dentist in here, I apologize in advance, but I don't know if that's any of you, but I pray that's not our heart with the Lord because we can be like that sometimes where we come in with a hardened heart and we're just begrudging already to be here. And no matter how convicted we get, no matter how slapped in the face with the truth we get, we've already got our mind made up of how we came in and how we're leaving. And so my prayer is that we would just soften our hearts and be able to receive and respond to the Lord today. And so with that being said, I'm gonna pray and then let's go and so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for this time with your word. God, I just pray we fall more in love with you. It's not about talking about you or singing about you, God. It's talking to you. It's singing to you. Jesus, thank you that your presence is right here with us. And God, I just pray that for every person in this room, it is physically impossible for them to leave here the same way they came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, well, really quick, just to give y'all some background on the Church of Sardis, it's, I have one picture, kind of show you where it's located. Near the top right, Sardis is about 35 miles south or southeast of Thyatira, which we talked about last week. And actually, I was blessed, a, a small team of ours, we actually went there about a month ago, so I figured I'd flex and show some photos because no one else had any real photos there. So here's one photo of uh, Sardis, and this is where I, where I was standing at, taking this picture. That was a big field, probably about the size of a football field, 
where at the time in its heyday, um, it was like a market, a bazaar, and there was a tons of people. Picture Valley Arts and Crafts Festival, like times 10, right? And so they were known for their jewelry, they were known for their arts and crafts, and they also, the reason they were so, I guess, prominent and wealthy is they had a river that ran by there that had gold in it and gold dust in it, and they also had a great soil all the way around, especially to the north of there, between there and Thyatira. Therefore, they had a lot of land, a lot of jobs, a lot of good soil, and a lot of money. And so people who lived here, most, most people who lived and worked here were not struggling like a lot of places. This was a wealthy city. And we also see that, and even this picture right here, you see in between these arches and all these arches back then that the Romans had their different gods and goddesses, statues right there in between there. And then next you'll see right to the left of us on this field, it's kind of reconstructed because it's falling apart, but that was a Jewish synagogue, which I actually got to stand in and take a few pictures. And I can't remember, it was either the first or second biggest Jewish synagogue of the ancient world. And it was, at the time it was made, it was made out of complete marble and jewels and like sapphires and stones. And so they weren't lacking in money. Like, let me just get that point clear. And that's kind of a picture of Sardis and that's me sitting with the other Pharisees over there, but uh, that's me, or that's us, and we got to go to Sardis in Turkey, so that was awesome. And so that's a little bit of the background of, it's a wealthy city, great soul, they're actually kind of on a cliff, and so they were, from a military standpoint, they were in a great defensive position to where no one had actually ever taken them by fighting them head on. And so I'll touch back on that later, but that's just a little visual for you so you can understand. This is the church we're talking about. This is who we're talking about. And so with that being said, if you will, turn in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen as well. We're gonna read Revelation 3, one through six. And the word says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And so just starting in verse one, we already see this is a hard message, guys. This, he's writing to this church. And this is a hard letter because he sees straight through them. And just so no one gets caught up on this, on verse one, if you see, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He's talking about Jesus, but don't be confused. That kind of confused me at first, like seven spirits. But the seven spirits in the Greek it originally meant sevenfold spirit or the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit referring to a text in Isaiah chapter 11. And so what he's saying is the one who holds the fullness of the spirit of God and the seven stars which represent the seven churches that are written to in Revelation, this Jesus and the, with the fullness of God writes, that's how it starts, that's powerful. And he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. And so I have three main things I want us to kind of dissect. And the first thing is this, it's a sober judgment. God is looking straight through what everyone says about them, what everyone sees about them. And he's talking to a church and says, although you have a reputation for being alive, you are dead. 
I don't know about you, but that is harsh. There's not much harsher language than the word dead in this sense. And just to understand what, what dead really means, because obviously they were physically alive and breathing and thinking, or else they would not have received a letter, right? So we know they're physically alive, but let's look at what it means to be spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through five. Here's what it looks like to individually to be spiritually dead. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What does it mean to be, to be dead? What is Jesus saying in this word? He's saying, you are separated from me, you are dead. Individually, it means you are dead, right? Like it's not like I'm a bad person that needs to do better. I need to just clean up a little bit and I'm inherently good and stuff. You're dead unless you have been raised in Christ. Very black and white here, very point blank. But here's the thing, he's talking to the church of Sardis. John didn't write to one person, so that's kind of crazy to me because, wait a minute, God is telling the church they're dead? Like, what does that mean? Does that mean no one's saved? Does that mean no one's raised again? Well, let's keep going because I think about when he's talking to a church, here's some things that stood out, or just some things I wrote down of like what this could mean if a church receives this word. You put on a good show, but there's no sustenance. There's a lot of lettuce, but no meat. There's a lack of fruit. The Spirit of God has not worked there. And wouldn't that be a scary thought? We come here to worship a living God, a living Jesus who's with us. If God looked at this and said, hey, you're dead. My Spirit's not even with you. Like, we're a mobile church. We can, in T minus like one hour, we can pack everything up and get out of here. If, if, if we knew the living God's like, he says we're dead, we might as well pack up and go home. Like, what are we doing, right? And just to add some more context, let me, let me just help paint the picture. We saw a couple of visuals of modern day excavated Sardis, but let's paint the picture of what, I apologize, a lot of static, of what Sardis really was like. They were living at a time, of course, in Roman rule, in the Roman legal system. And there also was a, a, a super wealthy, prominent Jewish temple right beside them. If you have a good arm in baseball, if you're maybe your left fielder or a good shortstop, you could probably throw a baseball from the Jewish synagogue to where, the, where they met, several places they met at church. That's how close they were. So they're between the Romans and the Jews, yet he says, although you have a reputation for being alive. Well, hold on. Didn't, Jewish, didn't the Jews and the Romans persecute believers? Great answer is yes. It's okay, if you don't know, that's all right. Yes, and, and at this time, the Romans made it illegal to be a Christian, and we know this because the whole reason John writes the letter of Revelation is because he was banned for preaching the full gospel faithfully without compromising it. He was banned and exiled to the island of Patmos, and it's on the island of Patmos where God came and gave him a revelation. Hence, therefore, we have the book of Revelation. So the whole reason they're receiving this letter is because persecution led John to an island to write a letter. And so we know persecution is going on, so how is this church out in the open thriving or has a reputation of thriving? Especially when I looked and the Roman laws were, 
it was illegal to be a Christian unless it was considered to be a sect of Judaism because Judaism was legal. We see that all throughout the Gospels, the Romans didn't touch the Jews. They were afraid of uproar. There were so many Jewish people. But there was three things that made someone get persecuted. One, if you were recognized as a Christian, you were a Christian and not a sect of Judaism. So if you were separate and fully Christian, that was illegal. Two, if you profess Jesus as Lord, because that was a direct contradiction to the Roman law of Caesar is Lord, you were persecuted, that's illegal. Or three, if you did not participate in the feast of the idol worship of the Romans, if you didn't worship the idols, they said that's illegal. So how did a church thrive during that? Let's look, because let's look at one example from Acts chapter 17. I deleted it from my notes, I'm gonna turn there. Acts chapter 17, let's look at one example of when Paul is preaching faithfully. Here's what happens when Paul preaches to a Jewish people. Here's how they react. Verse, or chapter 17, verses one through five. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis yep, <laughs> and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, meaning Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason, Jason where they were seeking to bring them out to the people. What am I trying to say? We see all throughout Jesus' life and in Paul's, a clear example right there, when the gospel was fully proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jews hated it. Riots happened, they wanted to kill him. So how is this church of Sardis in the middle of a pagan Roman culture right beside a bougie Jewish synagogue and they're flying under the radar? Here's how it is, they compromised. They look really good on the outside, but they left Jesus out. They may have had a great student ministry and had enough money in the budget to like go to Universal fully paid. You know what I mean? Like they may have had a great kids ministry where there's like two adults for every baby or nursery, whatever, right? They may have even had like great speakers, great teachers, great pastors. The worship team was probably so deep. They probably had two services and the same people didn't play the same ones or different ones. Like there's a good chance they look really good and they had to because God is saying, I know you have a reputation. That word carries weight back in the day because someone's name meant everything. I feel like more so than it does now. Someone's name meant everything. Said, so I know you have a reputation. People see you as alive, but you're dead. Because although they had all that, if the church compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ being the one and only way to God in a complete surrender of him being Lord, if you don't die on that hill, it doesn't matter anything else that you do. And so somewhere along the way, they compromised. They wanted to go along just to get along. They wanted to take the easy route. And, and, and it's easy for me to point the finger. It's easy for us to point the finger because like, wow, those idiots, how do they do that? Kind of like we do with the Israelites or the Pharisees. It's easy, but listen to this. We all want Jesus until he costs us something. 
We all, like Isaiah, wanna, wanna see ourselves as saying, Isaiah 6, 8, here am I, send me, Lord. Here am I, use me. Oh, but I, I, I didn't mean like that. <laughs> Not if it's uncomfortable. And so there comes a point of where following Jesus is gonna look different than the way of the world. I've prayed for revival so many times in my life, but you know what's crazy? God showed me, Jesus doesn't promise us as believers revival, but what he does promise us is persecution. He says, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. The world hated me, it'll hate you too. But the temptation is not to be hated, but to be loved and love the things of the world more than God. And so we try to slip and slither and find a way to where, how can we love God, but love and be loved by the world at the same time? Now hear me, church, because I'm not saying we gotta be a jerk. I'm not saying it's us against them. Our battle's the enemy, not people, not him or her. Ephesians 6 makes it clear, Ephesians 6 makes it clear our battle's against, not against flesh and blood, but against Satan, against the demonic powers and principalities. So I'm not causing a riot, let's go attack non-Christians. What I'm saying is, if the world does not hate us because we are boldly living as a light, not only speaking the gospel, but living gospel-focused lives, if our life is convenient and easy, there's a problem. Because scripture makes it clear we will have pushback. We will have obstacles when we're following him. And just a few modern examples of what it looks like, like what it looks like when I think of someone who's living outside of it, and I'm not super creative, so you could probably think of better examples, but one, I think of both in marriage, but especially if you're single, if you're living a Christ-honoring, centered life, like sexual purity. I remember being in college not too long ago, and probably a handful of people I knew of that still had their virginity, or at least valued that, or at least pursued sexual purity, right? Because everyone, who cares about that? In modern day, if you date, you just live together. Like there's things that look different that are countercultural, but so easy we're tempted to go along to get along because we, we wanna be loved by the world, but also we wanna follow God as long as it's convenient, it doesn't cost me anything. And so he's looking at the church of Sardis, and, and sorry, another example before I get fired up. Think about, <laughs> think about in the workplace having integrity. What's happening when the boss isn't looking or your coworkers are all around? Like, how do you talk about them? When Jesus says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, is that you? Or when Jesus says in Colossians 3.23, do all things with excellence as unto the Lord, not unto men? Are we serving with our best as unto the Lord, knowing that he sees us? Like, people, I, I don't know if you've met people like this, but I know I have, but people in my life that seriously love Jesus, they talk and walk and live different in such a way, I say, wow, I wanna be more like that. And it's nothing about them. I literally, we get to see Jesus in them. And I know a lot of us have seen that, whether it's in a parent, a family member, a grandparent, or someone else, that if you ever really met someone who's truly in love with Jesus, man, it's captivating. It's different, right? Like they are set apart. There is a difference. And, and, and it's clear that somewhere along the way, the church of Sardis compromised because they probably didn't wanna be persecuted. Our humanity understands that. And also, just by compromising a little bit, we saw last week in Thyatira, if they went and served the idols and sexual immorality at the pagan temples, they would get their name in the merchant guild, which meant they could get a better job. So just by a little bit of compromise, I could provide for my family better. I don't get made fun of in the, in the streets better. 
The Jews don't like laugh at me and mock me just by compromising a little bit, just by blending in a little bit, just by saying Jesus is Lord inside the house, not outside the house. Like you see how this rabbit trail, this domino effect happens of just by compromising a little bit, life's a little bit easier. There's not any pushback. And so although God's talking to Sardis, he's also talking to us. And I wanna look at three characteristics of this dead church because this is serious. And I'm speaking with y'all, not just to y'all, because this is serious, because I wanna know, at one point, the church of Sardis was alive and thriving. After a period of time, it gets to a point where Jesus writes them a letter and says, I actually know who you really are, and you're dead. Like, what happened between there and here? Because we need to know that, because we don't need to walk off that same cliff, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to, to write a letter to Connection Church, Dear Billy and ATC. Dear Billy Incorporated, your church is actually dead. I'm not even there. So what did they do? And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a few things on how did they get here that I believe are good, like a good litmus test for us to see where's our heart really at because today I know it, feel, it might feel like a heavy message, but church today I believe God is trying to transform and cut hearts. But here's the good thing. Although the Bible might beat us up, might cut us, might break us, it does that so it can encourage us, redeem us, restore us, and save us. So I, I might offend some people here today, and, and that's not my goal to cause a worldly sorrow, but a godly repentance where you realize we are before a holy God, and if there is things in our life that are not of him, we gotta repent. And we've gotta wake up because we're dead. And so one of the things to see how did this church start losing its godliness? How did it start losing um, its life and becoming dead? One, they got to a place where there was no true love for God. I think one great example from Matthew 15, that he kind of says it point blank. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Another example from Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You see, we can do a lot of Christian things. Like many of you, I grew up here. And even on my worst of days, I could say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and be cordial and be polite. That's Southern hospitality. We can fake godliness really well. We can say our blessing before we eat and never really talk to God, right? Like we can come to church because we're supposed to, or that's the norm here. And we can do a lot of Christian things, but still not really love Jesus. If your public passion outweighs your private devotion. We've gotta stop and look in the mirror. We've at least gotta stop and ask ourselves these things. And one of the things I love that helps me be honest with myself and say, God, what, do I really love you? I love how he says in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. Is there a honest, sincere desire in your heart to seek and obey God? Let's not flip it sinfully and be religious. Oh, that means if I just obey more and do more things, I, that means I love him. No, no, no. If I really love God, I am going to desire to obey him. If, I, if we really love God, I'm gonna want to know him more, which leads to loving him more, which leads to obeying him more. If there is not a sincere desire to know and obey him in your life right now, that's okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Now, we came in here this morning not loving God. And that's a hard question, but that's the, 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 the pinnacle of this first point is the question of 
do you really love Jesus? Like, why are you here? Why am I here? Did I come to church because it's the right thing to do? If your spouse didn't make you come here, would you still be here? For some of you younger students or, or college age, if your parents didn't wake you up, would you have woke up and wanted to come to church and made a way anyway? And I'm not trying to extend guilt and beat us up. I'm trying to hold the x-ray without any dust in our eyes so we can just see it as it is and ask ourselves, Ethan talking to Jesus, Jesus, do I really love you or am I just faking it? And I wanna start by asking that, like a, a big, I think just a big way of seeing in our own lives, personalizing this, Am I spiritually dead? One, do I really love God? Do I really love God? And I know sometimes we can get distracted and sometimes we, we fall away from that first love like it was referred to in Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus a couple weeks ago, but do you really love Jesus? I heard a quote from someone that stuck out with me years ago. He said that if your deepest, most intimate moment with God is on a Sunday morning or at a church camp or on a mission trip, you're missing the whole point of Jesus. It is an intimate and personal relationship. And so if I'm just feeding and just eating off of what a pastor tells me or what the, the worship song sing or speaks to my heart on Sunday morning or even at a small group, that's great, but that's not, I'm missing the point. It's an intimate, personal relationship. For example, when I met my wife, Cynthia, who is awesome, when I met her, we met and got married really quick. I knew what I wanted, I knew where I was going, and I saw she loved Jesus, and I was like, let's just do this thing. Like, we met and got married quick. But when I first went to hang out with her friends in Clearwater, man, she had a tight-knit community. And they want, and I was going to visit the first time, I'm nervous, and, and hanging out with her and her friends there. And I promised, the, the friends wouldn't leave us, like, they wouldn't leave us alone. They were everywhere. They were in my back pocket. And I was like, at some point, all 12 of us, I don't want to just sit around and play code names with all y'all. I'm trying to go have an intimate date with Cynthia. I want to get to know her more. I'm here because of her, not because of y'all. Y'all are great. There's things we can do together that are fun in a group and bring life. It's called like in, in Christianized church, but there is an intimacy, a deep intimacy. I desire more than that. Is there a desire? Is there an intimacy with God that's in the same way? If your most intimate moment is at church, he has so much more for you you hadn't even seen yet. And so, reeling that back, once again, man, are we here because we really love Jesus? And if not, that's okay. But before we leave, we're gonna have an opportunity to respond. It's not okay to stay there. Secondly, what's another sign or characteristic of a dead church or a dead person? There's no true love for others. And I said this earlier, already, but you know, we're raised in the South, and I'm telling you, I think sometimes we've watered down the definition of love equals Southern hospitality. Loving someone doesn't just mean tolerating them or being kind or being nice or just smiling, opening doors. That's great, that's polite, that's manners, but that's not a godly, Christ-like love. I love how First John makes it very clear in chapter four, verses seven and eight, he says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see a Christ-like, and this is where it might sound dicey, but 
but stay with me. A Christ-like, unconditional, selfless love is physically, spiritually impossible without the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, wait a minute, I know there's some rebuttals because I'm some of the nicest people I've ever met, some of the most loving people I've ever met. They're not, they're not believers. I hear that. I've been to, praise the Lord, he's, he's, he's blessed me and, and let me see some things, but I've been to 21 countries and most other cultures love me a lot better than Americans do. Most Eastern cultures I've been in, there's been more Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim people who've invited me over and I feel genuinely cared about and they've invited me for dinner than I have just in my, neighbors, in my neighborhoods growing up here, there, and everywhere in America. And if I wasn't careful, I could say, man, they really love people. Yes, there is a love, but here's where it becomes impossible. There is not a selfless love because it's all defiled. There's always selfless nature. Check this out. If, if I'm an apple tree and I cut off all the bad branches or I cut off all my branches, guess what? I'm still an apple tree. If we're sinners and dead in our sin, just because we clean up everything else and all the branches doesn't mean we have what real love and perfect love looks like. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinner, I'm sorry, we, we sin because we're a sinner. And that is so important of why we understand it. Because if I believe I'm a sinner because I sin, what I really believe is I'm inherently good. I just need to clean up a lot of things. I'm only a sinner because I do these things. So one day I'm gonna quit doing those things. I'm gonna get better when I get older, yada, yada, yada. And then I'll be good. And, and I'm just be a pretty good person and nice to the poor and love my family well and take care of them. And I'm gonna go to heaven. If I believe I'm a sinner because I sin, you're gonna have a bad view because you're gonna realize you're gonna inherently, subconsciously, and very demonically believe that you don't need Jesus because you're gonna think you can be good enough. But if I realize that I sin because I'm a sinner, now there's a need because God didn't say, go, you're a bad person that needs to get better. He says, you're a dead person that has to be raised in Christ. And so I don't care how loving the, my Muslim friends are, or for example, when I was in India, I had a friend who actually passed away about a year ago and it broke my heart because he never could accept God's grace that he really needed Jesus. We were in India and he was at YWAM with me and he, he argued that Gandhi was in heaven. And I use this example because I think it's just very clear. We all have people in our life that we think the world of, or some of us might, that aren't believers and he just talked about how Gandhi, obviously neither, neither of us knew Gandhi personally, but he talked about Gandhi and how there's no way he's not in heaven. And it was very clear by Gandhi's literature that he saw Jesus as a good teacher, a good prophet. He said, I respect and love who Jesus was. I've actually learned a lot from him, but I do not recognize him as, as the son of God or as my savior. Stop, I don't even need to read anymore. I don't care what good Gandhi has done he is separated and dead from God and dead in his sin because he is a sinner no matter what he does to love others. There is a selfish root that you cannot escape outside from it being killed on the cross. And so what does it mean to truly love others? It's not just being nice. To truly love others, like I love how Jesus says it when he's talking on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So a lot of times we have this weird view of love, right? That's not really love because like, hey, Jesus is saying, 
If you just love your friends and family, people who are nice to you, guess what? Non-believers do that. You don't typically see real love until there's adversity, until it's your enemy, until it's the person that doesn't deserve forgiveness, but you forgive them anyway. Like we can just look at a case study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at Jesus in every example and pick out that's what real love is. And so the litmus test, the, 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 the measuring scale of what love is, do I look at Jesus's life and at least have something inside me that burns like that for other people? If you really love people, hear me, if you really love people more than anything else, you're going to desire and care that they know and see Jesus. I can't say I love my friend for 20 years that I've never shared the gospel with. I can't say I love my friend or family that I've never even tried to say, God, help them to see Jesus in me. Bring to a place where their hearts soften so I can have a conversation to explain why they need you. If you don't see people, I'm sorry, I'll back up. If you have a Christ-like love for people, your utmost desire for them will be that they know and see Jesus. And so that's the second part of the test of the characteristic of a dead church or a dead believer. If you really are alive in Christ, you're gonna love God, and guess what? That love's gonna overflow, and naturally it's gonna love people and not from a selfish concern. Third, and once again, it all comes from the first one. There's gonna be no fruit of the Spirit. There's gonna be no fruit of the Spirit in your life. I like how he says it. To the, once again, I'm getting all my ammo pretty much from him chopping off the Pharisees, but in Matthew 27, verse 27, or 23, verse 27, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Whew. Jesus said, hey, Y'all look great on the outside, but you're a coffin of dead bones, a tomb of dead bones on the inside. I don't know. I'm just thinking like recess, like people making fun of each other. I don't think there's like a bigger one than that, right? <laughs> and he says, well, you're like whitewashed tombs. I love how 2 Timothy says in chapter three, verse five, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. We can look and walk and talk and try to act godly and spiritual but if there's not the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life, we're dead. I look great on paper, look great on the outside, but when God looks at me, he sees dry bones. I love how Paul Washer says it. He says, you cannot stand in front of a semi-truck on the interstate and get hit by a semi-truck and leave the same, if leave at all. In the same way, why would I think, why would we think anything different, anything less if we experience and encounter a living God? Romans 1, 16 says, it is the power. The Greek says dunamo, which we get, or dunamis, which we get dynamite from. The power of God to salvation. If we experience a living God in the presence and a powerful God, how can we honestly look at ourselves and, and say we could leave the same? You can't. You can't experience salvation and true repentance of a living God and walk out of here the same as you came in. That's not biblically accurate. It's very clear that if there is not the Holy Spirit working in your life, if there is not power of the Spirit working in your life, there's not fruit of the Spirit coming from your life, we've gotta be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves this question. And God has been wrecking me with this all week because 
He's hit me the hardest with it. Do we really even love Jesus? Which leads to, do we even really love people? And then one more just to be sure, like, can I even see the Holy Spirit working in my life? And I know that might feel like that's a tough place to be or it might be easy for us to point at the church of Sardis because he's talking to them on paper, but he's talking to us. And for some of you, it might feel like it's a miracle the fact that you're just even here today, but I promise you it's not by coincidence because God is talking to you and he's talking to me and he's asking these tough questions of maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've said the right things. I was, I was a student pastor for three and a half years before I came here and by God's grace, students stressed me out, but when we're weak, he's strong. <laughs> but I was a student pastor and I saw a lot of students pray to receive Jesus. I'm sorry, I saw a lot of students pray to receive Jesus. But guess what? Not every one of them had fruit consistent with someone who actually had been born again with Jesus. A lot of times I think we pray, get out of hell free cards but there is not a heart transplant where he says, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. When you receive Jesus, there's not a true, there was not a true repentance, a true surrender, a true life change. I would argue there's a great chance by the biblical evidence, you never really were born again. And that's hard to digest because the person who believed that falsely is gonna be broken hearing that right now. And I'm gonna give you a chance to respond later, but first we have to let the word cut us and break us, and it's gonna build us back up. And so moving from that, he looks at this church and utterly demolishes them. It says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And we just looked at, what are some characteristics of what it means to be dead? And it all stems from not really loving God. Somewhere along the way, they compromised, they got distracted, and they cared about other things more than God. But secondly, praise the Lord, he gives us a gracious, gracious invitation. God in his holy injustice, he could, have, he could have left them there. He could have said, hey, I know your secret, you're dead. Dear God, right? Like he could have just left them there. But because of his graciousness and lovingness and mercy, he says, Therefore, he says, in verse, starting in verse two, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. It's so cool why he uses this language. He says, wake up. I don't know if you remember, but earlier I said, from a geographical standpoint, they had a very tactical military advantage, the, church, the, the, the city of Sardis. Never before in history has Sardis been taken head on through the front gates. The two times they were overtaken by the enemy, guess what? Someone snuck over the back. A little bit different, but pretty much the Trojan horse story. Someone snuck over the back wall, one time while a guard wasn't there, another time while somebody was sleeping in the middle of the night and let everyone else in. The two times their city fell, they were asleep. It's not a coincidence God uses that same language. He says, wake up. You think they knew what he meant by that? Absolutely. That was their history. That was their city. And it makes me think of us. We forget sometimes, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober and alert. 
full of mind because the devil roars around like a, or he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom, may, seeking whom he may devour. We forget sometimes there is a real war going on. There's a spiritual battle going on right this moment and he wants everything he can to distract and deter you from focusing on Jesus. Whether if you're not saved, he wants you to continue not being saved. If you are saved, he wants you to continue being useless and fruitless. Like there is a real war going on and there's a lion right beside my bed that I, I conveniently don't see. I think of Jonah, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Jonah where he disobeyed, God called him to go to Nineveh. He had a hard heart, he's like, they don't deserve you. He disobeyed, he ran, right? Well, he gets on the ship and there's a treacherous storm. They're about to be shipwrecked and everyone's afraid they're gonna drown. And he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Doesn't even realize it. And it gets so bad, it's an atheist or not even a blue, probably not an atheist, probably just like had gods and goddesses in, in, the, in the pagan time. But like the, the captain of the boat calls an calls a all gods, all hands on deck prayer meeting. And he's like, I don't care who your God is. I don't care who you are, where you're from, Greek, Jew, Gentile, whatever. Like whatever. Pray to your God, we're about to die. No, like, hey, Jonah had prayed to his God. Where's he at? He's asleep. And the same thing, it's like, as a church, I don't know if we're spiritually dead necessarily, but that call still comes to us when it's looking in the face of comfortable cultural Christianity where we wanna go along to get along. We wanna seek Jesus as long as it's comfortable. He's looking at us and says, wake up. There is a storm right outside of your house, right outside of your bed, right outside of your life, but you're asleep and you can't even see it. Oh man, what a rebuke when he yells, wake up. Remember what I've done to you. And I love how he says remember because once we're aware of this, like what do we do now? Yes, Lord, I know I'm terrible. Yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Like I'm just gonna leave here depressed. What do I do? Well, he says wake up. And this morning, if you're waking up right now, let's just follow it along. He says remember. He says remember what you've received and heard. And I'm gonna read a few statements I wrote down in my prayer time. It says remember what Christ has done for you personally. Think about what Jesus has done for you in your life up to this point to get you here. Remember how he is the only one to eternal life. Remember, he is the only one that satisfies. See, look, it's really good and attractive. But I joke around because I have a bad sweet tooth. Sin's like chocolate cake. It looks really good, but then I feel terrible 10 minutes later. Remember, he's the only one that satisfies. Remember, he is the only one that gives true love, joy, and peace. Remember, he's the one who actually created you. What my chance? Remember, he is Lord and not you. Remember that he sent you and wants to use you as a witness for others. Remember the gospel, how he died our death that we deserve so we could come to life from death to life. So he says, wake up, remember. Remember what I've done. And he says, repent. You say, I love we were in sermon prep and one definition they gave, the guys gave, which I love, it says repentance is an invitation back to God's original design. And God is good and his design for us is good. True repentance is a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of direction. That was a military term. And I love how it talks about repentance and sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verses nine and 10, Paul says, yet now I'm happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. 
and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, there's a difference between being sorry because you got caught or being sorry because it makes you look or feel bad and being sorry because you broke God's heart. A worldly sorrow is self-focused. A godly sorrow is God-focused. I think one of the best ways of seeing what the truth is versus lies, just looking at the, the real thing. Listen to this. I purposely didn't put it on the screen because I want you just to hear these words and let them marinate. Look at what true repentance looks like from the words and mouth of David in Psalms 51. I'm gonna read a few throughout the verses. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. Surely I was sinful at birth. Cleanse me, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Do not cast me from your presence. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not shut out. You see, if we really come before the Lord in godly repentance like that, I guarantee you God will use you and transform you and change you. Something I, I shared a lot with students when I was with them, but James says it this way. He says, faith without works is dead. A lot of times we can, we can do works but not have any faith. But true, genuine faith always leads to works because it's a byproduct of who Jesus is. In John chapter 15, verse five, he says, remain in me as I remain in the Father and you will produce much fruit. But he who does not remain in me will not produce any fruit. If we are in the presence of God, not only is he gonna transform us, but he's gonna use us to reach others and be fruitful. And so true repentance leads to real transformation and leads to real fruit. Lastly, I wanna give a quick picture before we close of the victorious church because verses four and five near the end, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is a victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. You see, Jesus says, hey, there's a few of you though. There's a, there's a victorious few who have not sold their, their garments, sold their robes. That's, that's like old school Jewish temple talk of if, if your clothes weren't clean, you weren't allowed in. There's a few of you who actually are part of me. There's a few of you who are clothed in white and righteousness. There's a few of you who do walk with me. And the same thing, like what are characteristics of those who are walking with God, are victorious versus the dead church that's not the characteristics are one, they walk with him. Like they actually love him. There's real intimacy. They're not fake loving God. There's real love there. They're not just religious. It's not just lip service, but their hearts are far from them. Their hearts are actually in Christ. They actually walk with God. They love him too. Because of that, they love people. Which leads to naturally three, there's fruit. The Holy Spirit is using them to reach others. And in fact, he's using them as a staple of encouragement. If there are a few of you who are living it out and they will be victorious, and I think he's putting that picture say, hey, be like them. They are fruitful, they are alive, they are victorious. And just because he says they are worthy, let's not get it twisted and think there's some merit or way we can earn, because it makes it very clear in Isaiah 64, the Lord says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and the most righteous of our deeds are still like a filthy garment inside the Lord. 
Once again, we're not sinners because we sin, we're sin, we sin because we're sinners. There is something in us that is unpure and unholy. We will never be able to be pure and cleansed before a holy and righteous God in and of ourselves. That's really bad news. But the good news is, because of God's love for us, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, sent his only son, Jesus, that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life but not perish. The really bad news is we're stuck in our sins and even our best of works and attempts are still seen as filthy in the sight of a holy God. But the beautiful thing is those who are in Christ, listen how he talks about it. Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You see, the reason Ethan Floyd is worthy and will be in heaven one day has nothing to do with Ethan Floyd. It has everything to do with Jesus died in my place. And I surrendered and repented and realized I can't stand before a holy God, but I received this free gift. So I don't know where you're at because I think there's three groups of us and I brought three chairs out here for a reason. It wasn't just in case I got tired and needed to meander left or right, but I wanted to give us a visual because I believe there's a lot of us in this room that may have grown up like myself in church maybe in Vidalia specifically or somewhere else in the South or Bible Belt or wherever, and you become numb to the gospel, and maybe at some point you really did pray to receive Jesus, but maybe you didn't really have a true godly repentance and surrender. Maybe like many of the students I worked with before this, you just didn't wanna go to hell. But there never was any desire for God. There was, any for, there was never any desire for others to know God, and there was never evidence of the power of the gospel in your life. And if that's you, this is really, really scary, and your heart's probably <clears throat> jumping out of your chest. But if that's you, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond because if you're sitting in this seat where you've never actually been clothed in the garments of righteousness, in Corinthians 5.21, he says, God says, and I made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. If you're sitting on this seat, still the Lord of your life, and you've never repented and surrendered, that's a problem because Ephesians makes it very clear. You are dead in your trespasses, not bad and trying to get better. You are dead and separated from God for eternity. And the only way to eternal life, John 17, 3 says it this way, true and eternal life is this, knowing Jesus Christ. And that word know meant an intimate knowing. If you don't intimately know Jesus and he's the Lord of your life, that's a problem because you're separated and you're hell-bound. And so if this is you in this seat this morning, here's what happens. You need to be willing to have the courage to surrender and say, God, I give you my life. I'm sorry. I don't deserve it. But be the Lord of my life. And here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna stand up, and Jesus is gonna sit in this seat that sin paid for and deserved death and crucifixion. And now I don't have to sit there because I'm clothed in righteousness and you're clothed in righteousness. And so for some of you, that seat is where you're at tonight, today, this morning. Secondly, here's a seat I'm all too familiar with. This is a seat of someone who really is in Christ. That's my life. I got saved at an earlier age. 
but I still wanted to try everything. I still wanted to have fun just to find out it didn't lead to joy. It didn't lead to satisfaction in the first place. It was all a lie. And some of us really love the Lord, but somewhere along the way we've gotten distracted. We've turned to the left or turned to the right. We're chasing sin, not Jesus. Even good things that aren't blatantly sin, we still make them idols without even realizing it. And something today has convicted you about you don't really love the Lord, you don't really love people, and you can't see the Holy Spirit working in your life right now. And some of you are in this seat where you say, I know I'm saved, but I feel like it's been so long since I've been in love with God. It's been so long since I've just walked with him and gotten lost in prayer or even desired to open the Bible. And if that's you, don't miss it because there's good news is we can repent. And he says, I'll wash your sins as far as the east is from the west and we can start fresh right now. It could be two years without talking to the Lord and you start fresh right now because he's available because he loves us that much. And if that's you, don't stay in this chair. When we have an opportunity to respond, I want you to respond and be real with God and come to a place of real repentance and walk out of here with freedom. Walk out of here with a new joy. Because I know that's gotta be a lot of us. And lastly, this chair, this is the victorious few. He said, yet there's some of you who have not sold your garments. And he praises them and says, they're worthy, they're righteous, they're walking with me. They're actually in love with me. They're not afraid of persecution. They're saying I'm Lord. They're not backing down. And I say, if you're here, man, keep going. Lead, set the example for us. Encourage those who are in chair number two and one. Man, we need you. If you're here really walking with the Lord, man, we need you to lead. We need you to serve and lead by example. We need you to make disciples. We need you to be a light and share the gospel in the workplace. He didn't save us just so we could be in love and have joy to ourselves. He saved us to be a light to others. And so I pray if this is you, man, let your light shine brighter. Stay there. And so at this time, just so we're not having any fear of man, will everybody just close your eyes and bow your heads? And I wanna challenge who's in this first chair. If you know there has never been a heart change and a true surrender to Jesus in your life, and maybe you're shaking right now and stressed and, and anxious because the Holy Spirit is getting a hold of you and drawing you close, if you know right now that you need to surrender your life to Jesus, we have a prayer team and people who want to pray for you who have prayed for this moment. Do not leave here. I wanna ask you, every, every eye closed, will you raise your hand if you know you're ready to pray and receive Jesus? We have people that wanna pray for you. Will you raise your hand right now if that's you? Thank you, we see you. Somebody's gonna come and pray for you. Anybody else? If that's you. Amen. Keep your eyes closed and move to the second chair. Just being honest, and I'm not gonna have somebody come and pray with you. That's probably, we don't have that many people. But if we're being real and we know there's some things in our heart that God has brought to the surface as we've been listening to God's word this morning and there's some real godly repentance that needs to happen, you have a choice right now. You can either harden your heart and reject it or ignore it or you can say, Lord, forgive me. Change my heart. Create in me a clean heart. And this isn't for my sake to see or know or anyone else's because all, all of us have our heads down. 
But if you know God's calling you in that second chair where you know Christ, but you know you need to repent of some things, as a step of boldness for you and the Lord, I want you just to raise your hand where you are. Hmm. If that's you, raise your hand. Amen. Amen, you can put them down. I know no one else saw it, but just so you know, trust me, you're not the only one. <laughs> That's most of us. And I wanna challenge you, don't leave here without telling a Christian brother or sister that you can trust will hold you accountable because it's easy to make promises to God when it's just us and then we don't tell anybody else. Leave here and walk in it. And lastly, like I said, if you're in that last chair, if you're really seeking the Lord, man, what are you waiting on? Let's do it. There's disciples to be made and the gospel to be shared. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, God. I pray that thank you for cutting us and convicting us, but also restoring and redeeming us. Thank you graciously call us to repentance, back to your goodness and what you originally designed for us. God, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.